Bible with you, open up to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. We're going to be on page 607. Uh, like always, if um, you have questions at any point today, we'll, we'll do a little Q&R at the end. You can text your questions to the, the number on the screen. So this Advent season, we are uh, spending these four weeks uh, meditating on, thinking about the coming of the King. And in Isaiah chapter 9, we get this vision of what that King is like. And he has four attributes. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He's an eternal father. And he is a prince of peace. We are doing this uh, in cooperation with our other uh, four church friends, Doxa and Transforming All of Life. And we're also incorporating some visual art. And that's what this is. If you haven't seen this, we're responsible for the Prince of Peace part of this sculpture. This is all um, done by our church's artists who have used these items to evoke the idea of the Prince of Peace. There are three more sections on display at the other three churches in our little group. And on Christmas Eve, all four pieces are going to come together to make, I don't know, Voltron, I guess. Um, but the, a big uh, display, it's, it's going to be really cool, you guys. I just, I'm super excited about it. Um, but last week, we, we talked about the Wonderful Counselor. We talked about this, uh, this God, this Savior, this King that knows everything about the basic reality of how the universe works wants to share that wisdom with his people. But to recap where we went in Isaiah, and when we open the book of Isaiah, we find out that things in Israel are really bad. Things are um, going downhill fast. The people are wicked. They're self-centered. They are pretending to serve God with a lot of ritual, but they're allowing injustice to reign in their community. But then Isaiah says someday far into the future, God is going to step in And he's going to create a new world, make everything new. And we keep reading in Isaiah, and he tells his conversion story. He tells this story about how all of a sudden he's lifted into the presence of God. And he sees the great king, and he is undone. He is ruined, the text says. He recognizes in God's presence his wickedness in the light of God's holiness but he receives grace. He receives forgiveness for his sins, mercy and kindness. And we said, as as we're taking these, these four weeks, trying to behold the glory of God through these attributes that he has, that we should expect to react in a similar way to Isaiah. When we really understand who God is, when we really understand who we are, It should make sense that God should judge us. He should be stern and angry for all of the things that we have done to wrong him. And yet we should rejoice in the fact that he loves us unconditionally anyway, that he dispenses grace into our lives. If you're here today and and you honestly can reflect on yourself and, and, and say that I think what God owes me is kindness, then I want to just gently suggest that you're not seeing yourself clearly. 
But if you are someone who has seen your sin, who recognizes the brokenness in you, and you've given that over to Jesus, knowing you don't deserve his kindness, that's, that's when we receive grace like Isaiah did. And so we're going to continue to gaze at the glory of the Lord this Advent, and, and this is what we're being shown in Isaiah 9, 6. For uh, unto us, for a child is born for us, a, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we talked about this last week, but just to recap, there is this idea of, of this, this, this baby is something more than just a human. A child is born, but a son is given because we worship a God who exists as three persons. And, and we don't really understand that. The Trinity is a weird idea that we have a hard time comprehending, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, and they've all existed from eternity past. And so the son does not come into existence. He is given, but he is born. The son takes on a human nature, becomes a human child at Christmas. And the government will be on his shoulders. The the Messiah will come and he will rule. He will be in charge. Last week we said Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He has access to all the secrets of the universe, every core principle of reality, both outside and inside our hearts. And part of his rule of the government is to invite you to take his counsel, to be someone that sits at his feet and listens to his wisdom. But today, we're talking about another attribute. We're talking about Jesus, the mighty God. And we're going to do the same thing we did last week. There's two words in this phrase, and so we're going to take them one at a time. First first word is mighty. The word mighty here is is the word gibor. And if you remember in our Genesis study, when when we talked about the Nephilim, the, the, the men of renown that were heroes and wicked and, and this, this whole culture that precipitated the flood, these are gibor, they're strong men. Later on, we talk about Nimrod, who's a warrior before the Lord. This is the same word, he's a gibor. It means a strong, mighty, powerful warrior. G- Genesis 6, 4 says, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward. When the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. And then in 2 Samuel 23, we read, these are the names of David's warriors. And we're not going to list the names of David's warriors, but this is what this word means. It's, it's It's a military word. This is a word that we would use to describe the rock or Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe a few years ago. Jason Momoa. These are warriors. They are strong. They are mighty. And Isaiah says the coming king is going to be mighty. So how do you measure strength? We measure strength by applying resistance to it. If you have a, there, there are two kinds of, of competitions in, in um, uh, male fitness. And one of them involves 
a man in a very tiny outfit with oil all over their body, posing to show off their muscles. And that's fine. But then there's another competition where there is a man with a rope and a semi-truck, and he's pulling the semi-truck across the field. That's a strong man. A man who stands up to resistance and proves his strength We can look at that and say, that's the strong man. The people at the gym aren't the ones, the strongest ones aren't the ones that are posing in front of the mirror. They're the ones that are lifting the most weight. C.S. Lewis writes, the only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would be like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. What Lewis is saying is that Jesus, in his strength, stands up against human sin. Every single day, you and I are hit by sin and we cave. Not always. Sometimes we resist by the power of God that lives within us. But every time we cave, we don't really feel the strength of that sin, that temptation. But Jesus does because Jesus the scriptures say, is tempted in every way just like us, but he does not sin. He resists temptation at every turn. Whereas we are frequently handed the weight and we drop it, Jesus picks up the weight and he carries it. Our sins are a heavy burden that we cannot bear, but Jesus bears the burden of our sins on the cross. Jesus is stronger than our sin. Not only does he carry our sin, he gets hit with his enemy's ultimate weapon, which is death. The devil and his agents throw everything they have at Jesus, and it seems as though they have won on Friday night. Jesus succumbs to death. But on Sunday morning, Jesus overcomes death, and rises to new life. Jesus defeats death. There is no evil force in our world more powerful than death itself. And Jesus is stronger than death. Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. These supernatural forces that were bent on destroying the king gave everything they could to defeat him. And he stood up to all their attacks. What are the practical implications of a strong king? First one, I think, is Jesus is a warrior. He has defeated on the cross and will finally defeat his enemies. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 says, then I saw heaven opened. There was a white horse 
Its rider is called faithful and true, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is going to return as the mighty king, and he is going to wage war against his enemies. And this reality for us, Christian, is why we can live lives that forsake judgment and violence. Romans 12, Paul tells us, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And so there's these, these two ideas in Romans and in Revelation. And there's a tension there. And some of you are reacting to that tension by going like, it makes me uncomfortable that Jesus is going to come as a judge and a warrior. I don't really like that idea of Jesus. And some of you are uncomfortable because you're like, I don't really like the idea that I shouldn't commit vengeance on my enemies, that I should love my enemies, that I should feed and, and give drink to my enemies. Because both of those things, depending on your personality, depending on um, just your, your particular bent, feel uncomfortable. But I think uh, theologian Miroslav Volf helps us with this. He is a, he's a Croatian um, Christian who grew up in Croatia during a very dark period of war and violence. And he writes, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. 
Wolf makes the point that when we live in relatively safe spaces in, in a Western context and we don't experience the darkness of the world, it seems easy to imagine that God is just happy-go-lucky and doesn't really care and everything's going to be fine. But when you come into a context filled with Christians who are suffering and dying and being killed and harmed, on a daily basis, the comfort for them is that one day God will judge. One day God will make all things right. And all of this wickedness that's been done against us will be paid for. The only way that we can be people who walk in weakness and humility in a world filled with enemies called to love and serve them, even as they harm us, is to trust that our king is strong on our behalf. Wolf also says that acts of violence are committed in the world because people don't really believe that God's going to do anything about it. People are skeptical that God even really cares. But we just read it in Revelation 19, God cares immensely, and Jesus will come and defeat his enemies. There are utterly horrific things going on in the world today. Multiple millions of our children have been murdered through abortion in this country alone, and millions of their mothers live in circumstances where they believe that that's the only option for them. Ethiopia right now is in the middle of an ever-worsening civil war with murder and acts of sexual violence being committed on both sides. Our country experienced another deadly school shooting this week in Michigan. Some of those parents are grieving that they will never see their children again in this life. Some of them are grieving that their children will have to live with the effects of the gunshot wounds they have suffered. And then other parents are grieving that their son is responsible for that wickedness. If God doesn't care enough about these realities to actually stand up and intervene one day, how can we possibly trust him with our lives? The psalmist in Psalm 74 says, God, how long will the enemy mock? Will the foe insult your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, stretch out your mighty hand and destroy them? Later on, he writes, do not let the oppressed turn away in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, God, champion your cause. Remember the insults that fools bring against you all day long. The psalmist lives in this tension of seeing evil in the world and begging God to do something about it but also knowing that God can and will act according to his character in justice and righteousness. Jesus is mighty because he is a warrior. And another implication of this is that Jesus has no need for us to defend him. Isaiah 40, we read God saying, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Job 41, God says, 
no one is ferocious enough to rouse Leviathan. Who then can stand against me? Who confronted me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Scripture is clear that God doesn't have enemies that he cannot easily defeat. There is no power in this world that is a challenge for him. And this is something that I think we get wrong when we live in fear. I hear it all the time. Whatever it is, fill in the blank is a threat to the gospel. Fill in the blank is the greatest danger to the church in our generation. In the early 20th century, it was Darwinism. Middle 20th century, it was communism. When I was a teenager, it was postmodernism. Today, maybe depending on where you, you stand politically, maybe it's critical theory, maybe it's Christian nationalism. And those things have problems. We have questions to answer about those things. They don't align with the Christian worldview, but the good news is that King Jesus has come to defeat the darkness and establish his kingdom, rescuing a people for his own possession, and that cannot be defeated. Jesus says in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overpower it. You guys, the church cannot be defeated. The gospel will not be overcome. There is nothing that is a threat to the gospel that it's gonna, it's gonna disappear because of this worldly ideology. There is nothing that can stand up to Christ and win. Charles Spurgeon says, the gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. Are we people that trust that Christ is a mighty warrior who will crush his enemies and save his people? Or do we think that maybe the next election cycle or the next technological innovation or the next news cycle is going to make it all come crashing down? We're not going to survive this. Friends, that's not true. The king is coming and he is mighty. And so my question for all of us is, what are the areas of your life in which you are afraid? What makes you anxious? For you, what is it? What if, fill in the blank, what if I lose my job? What if my kids get sick? What if I'm, I'm never successful? Whatever that means. What if my marriage falls apart? What if the stock market tanks? What if our government skews to the left? What if our government skews to the right? What if everyone finds out my secret sin? What if I just can't get over this pain? And don't get me wrong, all of these things matter, but I don't think they matter as much as we think. Because when we become anxious and fearful and wrapped up in a what-if scenario, we have forgotten that our God is mighty. But Isaiah says the Messiah, the King, he isn't just mighty, he's a mighty God. And maybe that's a word you think, well, that's kind of obvious. Why would we talk about the word God? It just seems pretty, pretty normal. But I think it's important. The word is El. 
The word El or Elohim, that's a category word. We, we sometimes see it referred to for God, Yahweh, our King, but other times in scripture, it's just a generic name for a God, for a spiritual being. It doesn't always mean the God whose story we read in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 3, Moses says, Lord God, you have begun to show your greatness and your strong hand to your servant. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can perform deeds and mighty acts like yours? Psalm 97 says, for you, Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. You are exalted above all the gods. We tend to think that the Bible teaches that there is only one God, and that's true in a sense. There is only one Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the mighty, most high God. But the Bible recognizes the existence of these other lowercase g gods, these other L's. In the verses that we read, Yahweh is told that he is better, he is bigger, he is more awesome than any of these other gods. And if those gods don't exist, that's kind of a weird compliment. It's kind of like saying, wow, this dinner is sure better than being hungry. Thanks, I guess. You're so much better than all the other gods that don't exist. Okay, but see, scripture doesn't see the world that way. Scripture recognizes that there are lots of options for our worship. We are built to offer ourselves in worship to someone or something, and there are spiritual powers out in the world around you, and they want your worship, and you can choose to align yourself to them. Sometimes they are formal false gods like Allah in the religion of Islam or the gods of Hinduism or African animism or Wicca. Sometimes they're informal, just like a spirit of power or money or lust. As we ponder Isaiah's description of the coming king, the child who's born and the son who's given, we see that he is the one God that is mighty. None of the other gods are mighty. And sometimes I think we feel that way. Maybe we don't express it like that, but we feel like maybe there's, there's kind of a bracket system. You ever watch that, um, that show where the guys build the robots and they have a cage match and like one of the robots has got like a circular saw blade on it and the other one's got like a pickaxe and they just smash each other to destroy um, themselves. And like they spend like tens of thousands of dollars on these robots and it's just this robotic death match and, and there's a bracket and, and who's going to win and like, um, you know, metal crusher versus, I don't have another dumb name. That's uh, <laughs> off my mind. And, and, and I just, I think about that. Like there's all these, these powers and they're battling. But that's not what we learn about God in scripture. When we begin to internalize the story of this book and what it tells us about how the world works, we realize that there is no bracket. There is no tournament. Our God is like Optimus Prime and all the other ones are Roombas. There's just no battle here. Our God 
the mighty God, King Jesus, he never fails. He never fails Israel. Israel chooses to walk away from Yahweh. Jesus Christ never fails us. But how many times do we just choose to walk away? Scripture gives us this framework for how to live our lives, to trust in Christ, to come through for us, to fight our battles for us. And we, we just decide, you know, it's, it's just not working. I'd rather trust in power or privilege or this God or that God, money, influence. I tried Jesus and he just... I don't know, it didn't really work very well. I'm going to look elsewhere. Trust in another God to save me. G.K. Chesterton writes, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Are we guilty of that? Are we guilty of, of, of looking at Jesus and the promise of hope that he offers and then going like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I have time for that. That sounds, that sounds hard. I, um, a few months ago, I, I bought an um, a online curriculum for body weight exercise. You know, you, you know those guys where they, like, they can do like one-handed pull-ups and like handstand push-ups. And I thought, I could, I could be that guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to do that. And I think it costs like $300. And uh, I did it twice. I, I mean, the, the first lesson, I, I had to repeat the first lesson twice. And then I quit. Um, you know, and I still have it. I could go back to it if I wanted to. It's an option I have. But see, that program didn't fail me, did it? I just, I just quit. I just, I just didn't do it anymore. And I think there's an opportunity for us to see Jesus the same way. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I do that sometimes. But there's other things, and I got busy, and it was hard. Think about those areas of fear and anxiety again, those what-ifs. Where do you turn first in those times? Do you lean into your experiences, your the, the accumulation of, of what you know from your life? Do you lean into your intellect, your bank account? Do you, you just go to something that's going to take your mind off the problem, like alcohol or drugs or pornography or food or shopping, whatever that thing is for you? All of these things are weak and powerless to save. Only Jesus is a mighty God. All the other gods will fail us. And maybe this morning you've never trusted in Jesus as the mighty God. You, you are not a Christian. If that's true of you, you are following a lesser God. You are giving yourself over to things that are weak and frail, thinking that they will provide you with strength and life. Maybe today you call yourself a Christian, but you, you know deep down, you don't really trust in Jesus. You, you treat Jesus like my exercise program. You, 
you keep it in the background, just you might get back to that someday. He's not really mighty in your life. And maybe if you can be really honest, you can say, you know, I'm not really trusting Christ, but I can't think of another God that I'm putting my faith in. And that's probably because you've put yourself on that throne, which might be the most pitiful circumstance of all. And if that's you this morning, just know that Jesus is offering himself to you to be mighty on your behalf. He wants you for himself. He wants to fight your battles for you. But if you decide to refuse him, you will remain his enemy and he will come to judge and destroy his enemies. This Advent season, we live in a world that is full of danger. We are shepherded by our culture to live in fear of many different things. And enemies seem to surround us everywhere we look. And into the world, the mighty God has come. He was was born a helpless baby, but he grew in God's power, in the spirit, and he conquered sin and death by his cross and resurrection. And Christian, this morning, he is your mighty God. He fights on your behalf, and he will return soon to finish the job he started and judge and destroy all of the evil in the world, ruling over it with a rod of iron. When we are afraid, this is our hope. Let's go over some questions. I still don't know how this phone works. It is a flip phone. Yeah, that's right. There we go. Will Jesus come back to defeat people who have done evil things or defeat evil and suffering itself? That's a good question. I think the answer to that is both. I think if we um, understand, uh, or at least the way I understand the, the way this story arc of Scripture goes, there are two places that we can be in the world. We can be part of God's family, or we can choose to reject him. And God is good and gracious and longs for all people to be saved, to be made a part of his kingdom, to be given new life in Christ. But it seems as though there are a lot of people that don't want that gift, that would rather give their allegiance to another God or take on their own autonomy and refuse to submit to Christ. And yeah, as as you keep reading in the book of Revelation in chapter 20 and chapter 21 and chapter 22, we see that sin and death and evil are all defeated. There is no more of those things. But for the person that does not want to be in the kingdom of God, that does not want to submit 
to Christ as king, the only other category for them is death and destruction and evil and wickedness. And I just, I don't believe any of that will exist in God's kingdom one day. And that's a sobering idea because many of us have friends and family who, who have not given their lives to Jesus. And yet there's still hope every day that we live. The Spirit is saying, come, turn, repent, forsake your sin, be welcomed into my family. When Christ returns, he will find evil and wickedness um, directly pointed at him. And he will destroy his enemies. And those enemies are absolutely the very concepts of death and suffering. They're also the powers and principalities, the spirits of darkness that work in the world and wield those weapons against people. But people will align themselves with those powers. And they will refuse the gift of life in Christ. But as long as it's today, if that's you, there's a chance for you to accept the gift of salvation in Jesus, fall on your knees in front of the mighty God and be cleansed from your sins and adopted into his family because he loves you and he wants you. He wants to battle on your behalf. We're going to take communion like we always do. Jesus, uh, very wisely, this wasn't an accident, he gave us the communion meal by re repurposing the Jewish Passover. If you read in the Gospels, the communion meal is given to the disciples during the Passover feast. And Passover was about God's mighty victory on behalf of his people over the Egyptians. Deuteronomy 26 says, so we called out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our cry and saw our misery, hardship, and oppression. Then the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with terrifying power and with signs and wonders. See, this dinner that Jesus and the disciples were sitting around was a reminder of God's powerful deliverance on their behalf. He rescued them from oppression. And Jesus has the gall, because he is the son of God, to say, no, don't, don't do this in remembrance of Egypt. Don't do this in remembrance of the power of God delivering you from Pharaoh. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because his body broken and his blood shed on the cross are the new focal point of his mighty deliverance of his people. This time he doesn't deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death. So Jesus is very strategic in saying this thing you have been using to remind yourselves of my power in your lives. 
I still want you to do that, but I want you to realize that my greatest power is shown at the cross. We have been rescued from sin and death. We are being rescued from sin and death, and we will be rescued from sin and death by Jesus Christ, the mighty God. So I invite you as we, as we sing, as we remind ourselves of these things from um, our songs, that you would take us some time and come take the bread and the cup back to your seat and just reflect on those questions. Where, where are those places where you are afraid, where you are anxious, where you're just not sure everything's going to work out all right? And then ask the Lord to show you, where do I go when I feel that way? Do I cling to my mighty God? Do I, do I cling to the cross of Christ? Or do I, do I immediately go to, well, we've got, we've got room on the credit card. Or I think I know the answer. Or I need to go talk to this person about it. And those things might not be bad things, but ask God to show you, where is my trust this morning? Do I trust you, Jesus, to be mighty on my behalf more than anything else? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.